Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on MovieHouseMemories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from LunchtimeMovieReview.com. And we are the children of the 80s. Previously on Lunchtime Movie Review. I'm Matt. I'm Chris. I'm Bill. I'm Patrick. Sancho. And we're bringing you The Shining. We'll see how much funny's in this one. <laughs> Female doctor, what do you expect? He let her watch too. The honey badger don't care. He don't give a shit. <laughs> I just went crazy listening to that shit. <laughs> <laughs> Ass was hanging out too when he was going down. This is a stellar year for uh, one... Shelly Duvall. Yeah, Gollum had a big year that year. That's all I can say. <laughs> I've got some bourbon. Yeah, you might want to you might want to mute that next time you take a drink of the ice. <laughs> Even as olive oil, I remember hating that bitch. Oh, oh. <laughs> so you're saying she's not hot? We watch movies. We don't read fucking books. But yeah. uh, and for his audition, he had to uh, audition as some of Christian Slater's parts in some of the movies. <laughs> but what would have been actually? Can you imagine? crazy coked up robin williams stream of consciousness as the crazy jack torrance character going around oh hello oh, what am i gonna do now hello maybe i'll kill you all right good you're job, fixated right? on the honey badger and now the conclusion of the shining all right so to the guys who are saying that there are no ghosts in this movie i think who, who was that, that chris was patrick Okay, so how do you explain Wendy seeing Honey Badger? How do you explain Wendy seeing the the guy blowing the the, the bare box? necessities? Well, she's yeah. under she's under duress. You can hallucinate when you're under duress. If you notice, the other characters in the film did not see them, so this can be completely her creation in the context of the movie. I mean, people do crazy things when they're under stress. But she's the only one that can't shine. And then she sees the right. guy in the, in the hallway. Great party, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but- so, well, you know, if someone suggests that the uh, place is haunted, you might start seeing uh, your own ghosts if, uh, if uh, you're starting to believe it. So I don't really think that it means that she has the shine or doesn't have the shine. I, I personally don't think she has the shine. But just because she's seeing something that might not be there doesn't really mean that it was ever there. It just means that she's not in the right frame of mind and that she has also descended from the sane to insane. And it just happens to be that she also has an identical hallucination of people in period costume of the same weekend in the 1920s. Well, and that, oh, but that, snap. that could be that, just, that's, that's just the perspective of the, the filmmaker that they're just simplifying right. it for the audience. I mean, that, you know, I, I like the, I go more with the idea that there, this is a haunted hotel, that there is supernatural. You look at the, the commonalities between the room two, 237 experience that the kid has compared to what Jack has the period stuff. I, I think it, well, it makes, more sense to make everyone instead of being independently crazy and yet having common hallucinations that they are seeing ghosts but but even the same having the same experience he's already been applied he's already been told what the 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 boy experienced in that room so when he goes in there if he's already you know already sunk into this madness 
is that he's going to start having this. He potentially can have the same vision. So that's easily explained away. I, I would agree with um, Sancho that the, the ghost at the end that Shelley Duvall is seeing is probably the best evidence or best proof that this this hotel is haunted other than if you have any reference to the Stephen King book where the hotel is haunted it is an entity into itself and is the driving force behind any everything but there's so, they played it down so much that I let, I think Kubrick did it purposely so that there can be this you know this interpretation that there can be a view that this isn't supernatural this is just a man you know f- you know drowning in madness well, but the, in the beginning, when the chef is talking to the kid about the shine, he's talking about how the hotel has it too. So, the the chef himself, who's got this power, is talking about it. The kid's asking about room two thirty seven, and he's talking, "Oh, don't go in there," which kind of leads to this idea that it's haunted because some crazy ass shit went on in this hotel in the past. Lots of people have died. They show that picture at the end with. Jack in the middle of the 1920s party, kind of, again, intimating or suggesting that maybe it's some kind of a reincarnation of this crazy madman from the past. I think there's a lot even in the movie, and I I agree that there's some ambiguity there, but I think the movie has a lot of information to suggest or strongly favor the interpretation that this is a haunted hotel as opposed to a normal hotel with a bunch of crazy people in it. No, 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 I would absolutely agree with you. I would agree Sorry. with you that has that that that's the interpret that it's left there so it can go either way and there's a strong mm-hmm. view that it's supernatural but I can't I, I agree that you don't dismiss the other aspect of it because they could have made it absolutely supernatural they could have purposely d- done things like in the book there's no maze there's these kind of hedge um, animals that are you know carved out and out in the lawn that come to life and try to actually grab Danny. And that doesn't exist in this film at all. That would make it absolutely supernatural. You would not have any issues whatsoever with that. They purposely downplayed the supernatural on this, and I think it was so that you can have the interpretation that this person is, you know, falling into madness. But the only reason he didn't. But the only reason he didn't do the animals instead, of, and he did the maze instead, he said, was because of technology and not being able to pull it off. Bad special effects. Yeah. No, no, it would have been it would have been a terrible special effects in 1980. But I also think that there's other ways they could have, there's easily other ways that they could have brought up brought up the supernatural element that they completely downplayed in this. And even you know take to take the perspective. I don't know who mentioned it earlier about you know having the shine. And when Dick comes back, how come he didn't see that he was going to get an axe in the chest? Well, okay, that. That goes even goes argues even further that downplays that this supernatural element. If he could see the future, why didn't he see that? Or why wasn't he trying to talk to Danny, communicate to Danny? Well, maybe he didn't have those abilities, and that he's just a normal person, or he just has these every once in a while has these kind of visions of how things are going to be. So I, I think it downplays the supernatural element on purpose to make it. And I don't know why Kubrick would have done that, but I think to make it more accessible. I mean, I know what Stephen King thinks it is because Kubrick was an atheist and didn't believe in God and had to attribute the evil that this this hotel and this character have, or excuse me, the hotel would have to a specific character, to a person, and make it to interpret it in that way. And, and therefore, it was less grand and less, I guess, obvious. Well, I think Kubrick just likes ambiguity, and that's part of it. And he did downplay it, but at the same time, he uh, he, he didn't 
eliminate it completely. He he left that amb- ambiguity there where there was a supernatural element of the of the hotel. I I think specifically and purposefully in, in order to to flesh out or to to hype up the the ambiguity of it to to allow this discussion uh, to go on of whether or not it's it's a man devolving into madness or whether or not it's it's the uh, the hotel having an influence, whereas my take was it was that it was a combination of both. It's that the more mad that somebody was, whether it be Danny or whether it be Jack, the more influence these uh, the hotel and these entities could have on those people. Well, I mean, if you believe that it's entirely supernatural and there's no vagary about it, why change the ending? The ending of the of the book, Jack, you know, basically regains his composure for a period of time, lose the, the hotel loses its possession over him and actually helps save Wendy and Danny and Dick as they get away and he, he gets blown up in the hotel, uh, absolutely destroying the hotel. I mean, that would leave no doubt whatsoever that it's supernatural and that they changed it. They changed the ending dramatically. And No, I'm it. saying he specifically intended it to be uh, ambiguity. No, no, no. I agree with you, Matt. I'm just arguing with the other guys. Those guys, they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> I think somebody else is slipping into madness. <laughs> well, it adds to the replay value of a movie. You know, typical horror films, you uh, you get scared once, you know it's coming. It's not going to scare you because it's just quiet and then a big boo. You know, this one, you can watch over again and again, catch something different, and it'll change your perspective of something, then you can just argue over it all over again. And mm-hmm. that's why he did it that's why he is a, a good director can i just yeah. say we've nerded out over this film more than anything except for maybe blade runner man the two nerdiest films that we've uh we've... because they're the, they're the only <laughs> decent films we've reviewed yeah. <laughs> we, we you keep, get, you keep giving me the... skate town usa and <laughs> corvette summer what the hell we haven't hit on a third of the themes in this movie right well, oh but well, but i would agree with you matt that this is there's both films are very ambiguous, and that's why I think that they've remained popular. They've remained somewhat in the public consciousness. This film didn't make a, a lot of money. Blade Runner made even less. Yet here we are, still roughly you know thirty something years later, talking about it and what and the a interpretation. Lot of still say that this is Kubrick's greatest film and arguably the greatest Stephen King, uh, I guess, retelling. And they didn't have to rely on big budget special effects for this movie, other than uh, like the, the the blood coming out of the walls at the elevator. I mean, and the the woman in the bathtub. There wasn't a whole lot of effects to this movie, which help it stand up to this day against any other movie that's created. No, I was going to say I didn't realize that was special effects for that woman in the bathtub. I just thought they found some nasty old broad. To... <laughs> <laughs> do that, you have it? I think that was stores? that was Lindsay Lohan straight out of the womb. Oh, I feel oh. a lot better actually knowing that there was some special effects there. I was kind of worried that someone had looked that bad, but that's good to know. I, I do want to talk a little bit about that scene, uh, the 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 lady in the tub scene, not just because there's uh, nudity, full frontal, and or eighties Bush. I, I, actually, it's even more than that. There's a little uh, there's a little burger going on there, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Majora. <laughs> Absolutely. But not not for that reason, but I was researching a little bit on this and, and there's a there's a couple great commentaries on on YouTube that we'll we'll try to link to uh that talk about these scenes and I thought it was really interesting that they they compare this th- scene to the scene where Danny's looking for his toy and and the and the mom says, "Oh, he's your dad's sleeping, be quiet." And he goes in there and the dad's sleeping in there. 
and I think it's the scene that was already referenced where he says, I want to stay here forever and ever. And he puts him on his lap and he kisses him. And, and the commentary goes through how it's this, it's kind of the same thing where Jack reaches out to his son, the same way the woman in the tub reaches out to Jack and that they approach each other slowly and that they're, they're somewhat intimate that, you know, Jack's kissing his son versus Jack caressing the, uh, the naked woman who, who at this point is young and thin and hot. And then, Jack realizes or looks in the mirror and sees the decayed woman. What the, the, commentator, the, the commentator was saying is that this is essentially the scene where, where, where he or where, where Danny gets attacked and gets choked. And he's saying that this is where Jack is actually attacking Danny. And he's creating this in his mind that he's not doing this with this, with this woman. And the, the, some of the support for it is that when uh, before Danny goes into room 237, he's playing with his cars. And what do you see roll through there that causes him to go in the room? Ball. The, te- the tennis ball that he's always playing with. And that what he finds in there is his dad, and his dad attacks Danny. And that both Danny and Jack have this vision of the woman uh, in the tub in order to kind of block out what's really happening. Anyway, I'm doing a horrible job. But Let me I, make an argument for uh, Jack attacking Danny. Yeah. Um, at the beginning of the movie with the doctor, um, we find out that Tony first appeared when um, Jack attacked him. And uh, after Danny gets attacked in this movie, um, he is no longer referred to as Danny. He's now Tony. He, Tony only appears after Jack has attacked him. So my take was that Jack attacked him in room 237. And the shine uh, created this little mutual um, image of who who attacked him. And the attacker, um, this woman, the, the beautiful woman would be Jack's ideal woman free from his wife. The decayed old woman is Jack's personification of what he thinks his wife is. This old hag laughing at him that's bringing him yeah. down. She's much better looking so, than Shelley Duvall. She's, she is much better. And you do see some 60-year-old cooch in this one. But, yeah. um, but there's a lot of things about mirrors and reflections. So to go back to the scene that they were talking about with the fire truck, if you go, when Danny goes in there, you see the, the scene is framed as you see the back of Jack's body. You see his face in the mirror. But in front of him in the chair are some pants with legs crossed, strategically so it looks like there's another person in that mirror if you notice anytime there's a ghost in this movie that jack sees he's looking in, in, into a mirror so that basically tells me that that ghost is the reflection of him so i think jack was talking to himself about what to do with danny in that scene when he walked in and then everything that matt just said it's a it's a mirrored reflection of the the scene with the woman in the bathroom it's the same thing, and it's all about Jack attacking his son. And then one, one last That's thing awesome. about his, his anger. <laughs> What's that? I said, That's awesome. <laughs> and then my, my last thing that I would say that they showed that, uh, that this is consuming Jack is that uh, the scene with the bartender, you know, he starts talking to the bartender about attacking his son. And this is basically a scene where Jack's anger's consuming uh, Jack's anger towards Danny's consuming him, but at the same time he's imagining that he is drinking Jack Daniels, 
and Jack consuming Danny and consuming Jack Daniels is just too close of a parallel. Yeah, I agree with you on the symbolism with the bourbon and the Jack Daniels and Jack being the Jack and Dan, Danny being Daniels, as, as well as this theme of alcoholism, abuse, and the the inheriting. You know, they talk about the shining being inherited, but you also have this potential of alcoholism and abuse being inherited to Danny through Jack. And, and I do think there is a, an interplay with that. Who who was that saying that last diatribe there before you, Matt? Was Chris? that Chris or Patrick? I got that a lot Chris. of diatribe. Man, on that. that that was well played, man. I, I like that. Um, that was yeah, I like that. Now the other thing about the lady in the tub that I saw, and I don't know, this might be me reaching, trying to be all look. At, I get Kubrick or whatever. Was the Feel free? I reach all the time. Yeah, no. The you have the beautiful uh, young, you know, caressing woman who's giving love versus the the old. Uh, decaying woman, right? And and it's interesting that through all this, through 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 the ghosts and stuff that are seen, right? They're not decaying; they're they're murdered. But this is the one image where this woman is rotting and decayed and old. And and for me, I saw it as kind of this uh, this juxtaposition of the duplicitous of Jack, right? In one one hand, he is a loving uh, father, but then on the other hand, he is this abusive father not just to his wife but to his son and this is kind of representing a father who at sometimes can be very loving and very very good but then is also rotting and decaying inside such that he snaps and and can become very abusive well i think he uh he kind of resents uh society for making him be with the family when he doesn't want to be and that's kind of what uh, the women in this uh this film kind of point towards and that woman in the bathtub is, is like i said i think the the beautiful woman's the the personification of what it is to be free like as he says all work and no play makes jack a dull boy and he resents society making him work for his family so if he gets rid of the family he uh no longer has to work for them and he can go and play with these beautiful women first time we see grady he's distracted by a young woman with a i think she had a bloody handprint on her ass if i remember correctly so the only way that he can have a beautiful woman is to kill his wife i took that as he just killed his in his head he killed his wife in that bloody handprint he didn't even bother to wipe his hands before he's going after a new woman so he can play the other thing i i thought was interesting and, and again this is a link on youtube was all the uh, pagan and occult symbolism, uh, kind of the Illuminati and and these types of symbols with the um, uh, the chalice, uh, the I think it's the octagon or kind of the, the the circle and the various things throughout this film with the the patterns in the in the walls and patterns behind characters and on furniture and in uh, especially the carpet, which which is a really important backdrop for for the film and and this kind of plays into what kind of patrick's been talking about i think of of stephen king's critique of of kubrick and and being an atheist and being a being a pagan um that this is is kind of coming out in the film okay. hey i got a question do you think that dog in the room was a pagan or a god-fearing christian <laughs> i think it's a god god-fearing christian who was ashamed at its natural tendencies to want to suck some cock and so it was hiding by by being in uh the costume hiding his face from god and from other christians that's what i think that was we all wear masks (laughs) 
So we didn't talk about we didn't talk about the bartender, uh, and bartender was also in another film that the uh, children of the eighties have reviewed that got more talk. That the more uh, human than human, Tyrell. Yeah, Tyrell. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's the bartender. Yeah. Jim yeah. Turkle, yeah. He is our guy. Just a little bit of trivia for you nerds. Uh, <laughs> here's something that's interesting when we're talking about uh, who we really are and what's deep inside of us. I remember this. My brother turned me on to this movie. I was a kid. Sancho's brother was quite a bit older, Pancho. And he um, was reading The Shining, and The Shining came out, and he was trying to explain it to me, and I, I couldn't get my head around it. Anyway, one of the things I found out about it, about the score, which I think is, uh, we talked already, is very important to Kubrick, the music. But did you guys know that Wendy Carlos, who did part of the score for this in Clockwork Orange, uh, was formerly Walter Carlos and underwent sex reassignment surgery? Did you know that? No. Nope. No. No. Yeah, well, but wait a minute. So she went from a baritone to an acapella? Indeed. <laughs> acapella. A baritone yeah, to a falsetto. falsetto. <laughs> I, I don't know the music terms. Falsetto is the high one. <laughs> we'll go from a baritone to an alto. Well, so the same person wrote the music in, in both this and A Clockwork Orange. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. A person that uh, Wendy Carlos that Kubrick had used from time to time who did music. I, I know at least for Clockwork Orange and this. And also, well... Also did some for Tron, but was not a Kubrick movie, obviously. Right. But yeah, was a dude born originally in Rhode Island or something like that and became a very, you know, accomplished musician. But then in 72 had a sex change. Mm. Well, I just think that well, the part I think is interesting is I felt that visually, but also the music was was so similar to A Clockwork work Orange. So it does make sense mm -hmm. that the same person mm -hmm. is there, regardless of which genitalia they had at the... At various points. Exactly. All right, man. Do we sufficiently nerd out over this film, or do you, do you guys have other scenes and other points you wanted to talk about? Well, I have uh, a, okay. one other thing. One, yeah, just one other thing that I wanted to bring up. The red rum scene. And again, I watched this real late at night with the kid writing red rum and going, red rum, red rum, with a mom sleeping in the bed with the knife. That freaked me out. That's a, that's a creepy scene, man. Freaked me out. I, it made me like hope that my kids would never come into my room in the middle of the night saying red rum with a knife. Like, terrified. <laughs> we all hope that about our children. We have certain hopes and dreams for our children. And that's top of the list of mine. <laughs> so kids, kids in movies generally are not scary or creepy. But the the scene when that red rum was going on, and she wakes up and the kid's there with the knife. Big knife. And it's like, you didn't know what was going to happen next, I thought. So do we want to talk about the very end scene and the, and the photograph? Uh, and the photograph after Jack dies, after Jack is frozen, uh, they go to the photograph from, from July 4th, 1921. Again, if this is a commentary about the Fanning Fathers, supposedly uh, January – or. July 4th, Independence Day, is supposed to be uh, uh, related to that. But July 4th, 1921, and he is depicted as the caretaker back then. Does anyone want to talk about that? I noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is not in the film, or this is not in the novel. No, it's this not in the novel. This is a Kubrick creation. No, and I think it's probably the strongest argument that this is, a, you know, that there's a supernatural element to this film that uh, – uh, Unless it's a metaphor. Again, if, if Kubrick is so big into metaphor, then it really is just a metaphor for how this guy – it's not that he's literally a reincarnated version of the, of the caretaker, uh, but more that 
Um, well, I don't know. I'm not very good with metaphor. But. Well, that Christian Slater was around in the 20s <laughs> and in the 80s. There were there were no, that picture of Jack supposedly did not appear until after Jack's death. Yeah, and I don't, I, I read that somewhere, Sancho. But where where do we? What is the basis for that? Well, no, I mean, there's there's nothing more to it than maybe Kubrick didn't do it before, or you know, it just didn't come up. I don't, I don't know. It just wasn't there, supposedly. And the other shots that you can see of it prior to, it just isn't there. I think more than anything, it, it it's a ambiguous ending So to, to garner discussion to say, what does that mean? Are they reincarnated? Is this a dude that, that came out? Or is he simply possessed by this guy who was a lookalike or uh, essentially uh, taking over him, his body, uh, demo- through demonic possession? It's probably a, a metaphor for him always being the caretaker. It probably goes back to that Grady line for in some manner. Right. Well, well let me – Well, and he, but he, that's the thing. Is that literal or, again, is it metaphor? Because he says you've always been the caretaker and then they show that. So it almost seems that with that Grady line saying you've always been the caretaker in that, in that uh, photo, it's almost as if, oh, he literally has always been the caretaker. This it's, dude right here. It's a metaphor, and that picture is a reflection of it. Yeah, let me let me read something by Vincent Canby, who is a uh, film not critic. the Vincent Canby, the yes. Vincent Canby, who was a uh, film uh, film critic from the New York Times, I believe. I thought this was just kind of funny uh, or interesting. He he was not a Kubrick fan apparently, but he says the mediocre movie explains everything twice and always means exactly what it says. It waves its sincerity aloft like a truce flag. It leaves no question unanswered. It tells you exactly where you should stand in relation to its characters and its subject matter. It is frequently soothing because it tells you that you are right. Then, too, it can be like an unrelenting host who holds you captive until you finish every last morsel on the plate. But it tends not to stick in the memory because there's nothing there to wonder about. He must have watched this movie from the lobby. <laughs> I know. I've, I've, I remember that was him saying, I'm actually much smarter than all of you, and this is very, uh, very simple, my, very simple storytelling, and I don't know what you guys are talking about. I read the cliff notes. <laughs> The Cliff Notes was the book. <laughs> Chris, what do you got? I say this is, if this movie was 30 minutes shorter, it probably would have been in my top five movies of all time. But because it's uh, so long, it's probably in my top 15. Um, <laughs> I think this stands the test of time. It's a great, great movie. That's still high praise, man. Yeah. Good Stephen King adapt- adaptation? I could care less about Stephen King. I just am not a horror fan. Um, so I think that it's not a good Stephen King adaptation, and that's why I like it so much. In fairness, I think Stephen King gets the bad rap of being a horror writer, and he's not. He, he's normally – most of his books are generally more supernatural and, and, and psychic and, and kind of uh, psychokinetic. So I think that's, yeah. that's kind of a misnomer. Yeah, that could be true too. So, you know, I know nothing about the guy so other than he got hit by a van and bought it. I don't think he bought it. I think he's still alive. He's still alive. He's no, still he writing the, he no, no, the van. He, he bought the van and destroyed it. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I don't think he sure. I think he bought the van, did a line of coke off the seat, and then destroyed it. <laughs> All right. Bill, what do you got? Uh, you know, I enjoyed it. I don't 
think I saw the thing all the way through. I've seen parts of it at various times before, and so I think that this most recent watching was probably the one time that I actually sat down to watch it start to finish. There were moments that it really scared me, and again, I think part of that was the uh, not so much the actual visual images, but the combination of the visual with the audio. The music was, I thought, really well done and added a lot to the film. I think watching this film on mute would give you a completely different experience. You know, like I said, I, I like some of Kubrick's stuff and I don't like others. Uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, it scared me a lot, and I'm normally not a big fan of uh, of really scary movies, uh, but I did enjoy this film. Uh, I think it's uh, it's definitely got a lot to it. And it was enjoyable. I don't know. I, I don't think it, I wouldn't put it on a top 20 list like Chris did. Good film. I enjoyed it, but not one that I think I'll make a regular habit of viewing. All right. I'm going to go next. I don't have I've joked about this phrase often in the past, and I don't think I've used it in many of my, many of our reviews, but I think it insists upon itself as most Kubrick's films do. When I watched it through, I thought it was overlong. The, the, I really liked the first 40 minutes as they kind of build up to it. I thought they did a really good job with it with the music and everything else. But it loses me in the middle. And I agree with Chris that they should have cut out a good 30, 45 minutes of the, of the middle where n- no scary sequences happened and nothing happened and jump more to the end. I didn't like the film generally. As I, as I don't like most Stephen King adaptations, and I thought this was kind of along the same lines where there was something there, but it, it just was the, – the mark was missed. But in looking af- after the fact and in talking to Sancho and some other people about, I guess, the mythos that is, uh, that is The Shining, not unlike the Blade – not unlike Blade Runner, I became more interested in the process and in the story that was being told uh, after learning more about it. So I put this on the same uh, in the same vein as Blade Runner, where, where I don't like it as a film and I wouldn't watch it again. I wouldn't w- recommend somebody to watch it unless they're just really interested in kind of obscure uh, filmmaking and storytelling. And so I became interested the more I learned about it. But I don't think it stands the test of time ultimately. Would you have liked this more if there was more uh, naked black mamas in the chef's room? <laughs> Dude, there was plenty. That was, a, that was an interesting scene with those two pictures, I thought. He picked those up at the, the right-on shop. I don't know. What, <laughs> you got to get those online or now, something. Now, supposedly those pictures depict at one point the same pose as the woman in the tub is in at one point in the film. And I don't know if that's true or not, but that's another thing that I read. So go check that out. Patrick, what do you got? I saw this probably mid eighties. I didn't see it when it first came out. Um, I was a little too young for it at that time. I, when I saw it, I did not have an impact on me. It didn't really scare me. There, there was some, I remember visual things about it. I remember even when I was, even when, when it was released, I remember seeing trailers for it and the whole, night running through the maze in the snow end sequence it seemed kind of frightening in the trailer but when i saw the film it just didn't it didn't it didn't play well for me i thought it was really too long seeing it now as an adult i actually appreciate it and like it a lot better um due to its ambiguity due to the the visual style of it i agree with matt and chris it's still too long it should have been at least a half hour shorter that does get kind of bogged down in the middle of it where not much happens and it's it it's not really moving anything along. I still think now seeing it for you know for the first time probably in about 
you know, literally about 20 years that the, the, some of the, the visuals, the girls in the hallway, as I said, when I was watching it and he's riding his big wheel, I kept waiting for that to happen. I know he's going to turn the corner. I know he's going to see this, the elevator with blood, you know, even the, some of the ghosts popping up at the end in front of Shelley Duvall. Um, all if they were ghosts, if they were ghosts, <laughs> if they were ghosts. But all, all are very, all very good visual styles, and even running through the maze, I thought it was shot very well. I thought, from basically from top to bottom, I think it's done very well. I just with most Kubrick f- films, I think they go on a little too long, and this one does too. But I do think ultimately it does stand the test of time. I think it is still worth watching today, and I don't think it's very dated in its visual styles. In fact, more so that it's actually probably more accessible to people today than it was back then their use of the steady cam and how they used it throughout the film to follow people around was really interesting and i really liked the way they did it, the style i will uh, tell you this lads that i thought this film dare i use this word is an american masterpiece oof. i think because uh well i liked it as a kid but i didn't get it i didn't understand it i didn't have the attention span which is slightly larger now that I'm a little bit older. But the thing about this movie that's cool is that it's done exactly what we have done now, is discussion and debate. And if you look at it not as just a movie, entertaining movie, as a piece of, of art, a piece of film that, that people can really dissect and tear apart, I think Kubrick really hit his mark by his use of color in order to create mood along with music and the cinematography, just all of that, the composition of the entire film really draws you in, whether it entertains you or not. Aesthetically, you can't ignore the fact that, you know, the, the style that he has used that, that Patrick alluded to is just, just phenomenal. And in my opinion, any film that has stuffed animals or people dressed as animals performing fellatio <laughs> is a keeper, regardless of if the movie was crap. So it's all right by me. So the other thing, too, is that horror or pure terror often comes from within the family structure. And oftentimes when these really weird and horrific things like, you know, the guy chopping up his family in in 1970 come up, they are unexplainable. And I think that's why this movie works, because there's so many questions that you have about it. You know, is it supernatural? Is it not? Is it just guy going wacky? You know, where's it all come from? I think that's why this film is so is so successful. I think overall. I give it four axes, and um, I think it stands the test of time. I think it, it, it's, I, I'd say it's probably in my top 20 favorite films. Wow. Well, good on you, uh, Sancho. That was, you came strong there with uh, The Shining. Well, the, the children have sufficiently nerded out on this motherfucker for <laughs> the last hour or so. Who's editing this bitch? That would be me, you <laughs> You've always been the editor. <laughs> and I will always be editing this one, apparently. We're, yeah. we're approaching an hour 30. This is our longest. Are, are we looking to get it to 35 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. Well, Red Rum, bitches. <laughs> Check out our Facebook page and our uh, webpage at lunchtimemoviereview.com and uh, keep listening. We're getting out of here right now, and you guys are invited.
This podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme music for Lunchtime Movie Review, Fireworks, is provided courtesy of Alexander Nakaranda at SerpentSoundStudios.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of the MHN Podcast Network, Lunchtime Movie Review, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted.